0: sounds good
1: hey everyone welcome to another episode of the coaches corner university podcast i am your host paul oneed and today i am joined by ross lapala ross is a uh coach with rts if you're not familiar with rts it is mike to company uh he also has his own podcast and Honestly, I didn't know what I was going to be getting into with the subject matter, but we were just talking off air and I'm very excited. So Ross, thank you so much for joining me today.
0: Yeah, Paul, it's great to be here. I'm excited to dive in and chat with you and share some, uh, hopefully some knowledge and wisdom that can help people.
1: Dude, I I love it. And we were uh, we were linked up through a mutual friend, Meryl Bender. Meryl uh, is a mentee of mine. She's been on the podcast, and if you haven't checked out Meryl's episode, please be sure to check that out because it was it was really insightful. Um, and I think this one's going to be much more of the same. So Ross, uh, you know we've never met before, and I would love to know a little bit more about you know you, what you do with RTS, and what you do with your own uh, with your own podcast.
0: Yeah, so I started working with Mike, man, it would have been, I think, in 2014, okay. or thereabout, maybe 2013, somewhere in there. And at that time, I hired him to coach me. And while he was coaching me, I was also taking some of his RTS classroom stuff to help me increase my ability to write programming as I had some aspirations to to coach, and I really enjoyed Lifting weights, I've been lifting weights since I was 12 years old, and I really enjoyed coaching and, and helping people be better, stronger versions of themselves. And it was a couple of years after that, in 2016, I think it was, he mm-hmm. asked me to jump on a call with him. And he's like, hey, man, I uh, I want you to come coach for me part-time and with the intent to go full-time in a couple of years. I'm like, oh, that'd be awesome because I actually, I, would, I really want to be able to step away from engineering early. At the time, I was still a civil structural engineer and I didn't really like it anymore. I liked coaching a lot more. There was a lot more reward for me than just a paycheck. I really enjoyed what I did rather than just making money. Mm-hmm. So that really shortened the time frame from a 15-year plan to a two to three-year plan. And then about six months after that, I got laid off from my engineering job and I call Mike on the way out the door. I'm like, Hey, you know, that two to three year plan. What do you say? We speed that up to right now. Mm-hmm. He's like, Oh, what happened? I'm like, well, I just got laid off. Uh, company has to do some crazy stuff. I, I don't remember exactly what it all was, but I, I got laid off and I'm not sad about it. I think this is the kick in the ass we both need to to make this transition happen. Mm-hmm. And he was like, well, let me, let me go crunch some numbers and see what, what I can do for you. Why don't you go crunch some numbers and see like, what do you need to like live your life? Yeah. So we converged and we came back and we met with a reasonable number at the same, at the same spot. And he gave me a six month offer saying, you know, well, let's start out here and see what happens in six months. And so I go, well, I got six months to make myself irreplaceable to break right. and now here I am seven years later.
1: That's awesome, man. I know my, I've, I've only, I've only spoken to Mike once or twice and, and he's he's a man of very few words. He's very, <laughs> he, he chooses his words very carefully and yes. uh, he says what needs to be said, but you always can tell that Mike is speaking from a place of wisdom. And I use the word wisdom rather than knowledge because Wisdom comes from a place of application. It comes from a place of practicality and it comes from a place of understanding. Um, Right. How did, uh, how did like his influence change the way that you kind of coached?
0: I think it helps to see him at work and it changes you to be more curious. Because mm-hmm. that's the other thing, and I, I think it fits into the the wisdom idea that you speak of too. Is when you have conversations with him, at least I, for me, I, I'm like I have here. I'm having this conversation with somebody that's smarter than me about all things programming. Mm-hmm. It he's still always curious to know what do you think, you know, why do, and why do you think that? There's this curiosity to know what you think and why you think to to add on to where he's at and a general curiosity to continue to explore and find the right answer. And if that means he's wrong right now, he's okay with that. He's okay with it being wrong right now. He'd rather find the truth and find the real thing than go on being incorrect about something. So I always really enjoyed that about him with his curiosity. And and like, that's one of the big things that drives him is just this constant, curiosity to solve the problem like how do we write radically individualized training how do we how do we make it personalized how do we make it more effective what what rock have i not overturned to find more information to to make smarter training do we need one more set do we need one less set like what is the truth and that's always really beneficial because i think a lot of times we as coaches can get trapped into finding one thing that works. And all of a sudden, just because that one thing worked for somebody, everybody's got to do that same
1: thing. Yeah.
0: And that's just not how our bodies respond. We're very biologically different and similar, but different enough that is going to require different stimulus to have optimal training.
1: I think that's so interesting because it's a common trait I see amongst very high performing individuals is this constant quest for more knowledge but more knowledge from a place of like I never will be satisfied that I know everything right I I never want to be in a position if I do get to that spot where I'm like I know everything I'm done there's there's no interest (laughs) there's no interest in it for me and I feel like as an as an engineer like with a background in engineering that I feel like that fits really well right That, that must have resonated with you well, and
0: that was one of the reasons I was getting really bored with engineering. I was working for a communication company and we designed and built uh, primarily like cellular communication sites. Mm-hmm. And once you de- design a couple different types of foundations for a t- cell tower, you've designed them all. And doing the same freaking foundation design week in and week out, it's like, oh man, okay, this one's on dirt, this one's on rock, this one's on gravel, but it's all the same.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's all the same where this it's, it's all different. Like there's something different about every single person that I work with. And that makes it a lot more unique. And as well, like when you're working with somebody, they are more appreciative of the effort put in, you know, they're like, Oh, Hey, thanks for helping me with that PR. Whereas, you know, the cell tower doesn't go, Hey, thanks for not letting me fall over. (laughs) <laughs> you know, so there's, there's a, there's a more, I, I struggle to find the, the right word for it, but there's, there's more reward than just the paycheck with coaching.
1: I love that. And and one thing that I actually really wanted to ask you about working with Mike and working with RTS was the concept of uh, emerging strategies. So if people aren't familiar with Mike and with RTS recently he's gotten a lot of, I don't know if the publicity is the right word, but he kind of brought forth this idea of emerging strategies, which if I'm, I'm, please correct me if I'm wrong and I'll paraphrase, but it's essentially finding a recipe that works and just running that into the ground until you have to rinse and repeat. And something that i found really interesting was the people that are most successful are usually the most successful because they're great at doing the same mundane tasks over and over and over again to a high degree of execution. Right, but that's very few and far between when it comes to the types of clients that we're going to be working with, right? Personality differences, you know, um, commitment to the process, a need for novelty—these all factor into it. And I also think about it from an engagement perspective of if I'm just handing a client the same week over and over and over again, how do I convince them that they still should pay me money, even though I'm just rinsing and repeating the same thing over and over again? So can you speak a little bit to like emerging strategies and how that factors into, you know, this radicalized individualization of programming?
0: Right. So the main process is that you you write a microcycle. it's the training week and you repeat it until it no longer drives adaptation right and and you measure that based on how the competition exercise is progressing mm-hmm. say so you can add on two and a half to five kilos each week and then all of a sudden now you can't and there's a decline in performance well that is the end and so what happens is you find each person's individualized time to peak that's how long they adapt to stimuli and it holds pretty consistent. Once you figure out one person's time to peak, it holds pretty constant throughout their career. Sometimes we have to reduce it by a week, but rarely I've been on a five week development block for the past, like six years. It's (laughs) five weeks, five, five weeks, pivot, five weeks, pivot, five weeks, development, one week, pivot, five weeks, development, development, one week, pivot, So you repeat that stimulus, it's the same each week, and then you pivot and then it changes. Then the stimulus is different. You want from block to block, the stimulus is different, but in the block, the stimulus remains the same. And what that's doing is it's reducing the amount of noise and variables that are being used in the input of the data Mm -hmm. so that you can see what type of stimulus each lifter responds best to and use those things that they respond best to. For example, I respond really well to doing a by one at eight, followed by a by five at nine and a load drop. That's a, a bread and butter loading protocol for me.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Whereas I've had other athletes, if I gave them that, it would break them. We can't do that with them. Right. I've, I've had a lifter where I've peaked them into a meet and they hit PRs in a meet using a ramping set of four to an eight RPE. like. So that means the highest intensity load that they touched going into a meet in their training was about 84 percent, and then they're going to go out there and they're going to max out. That's me. That, that sounds that sounds scary. Yeah. But when you test it and you can measure it and you can repeat it, just like any scientific experiment, mm-hmm. well then then it works. And so one of the ways I look at it is emerging strategies is a, is the scientific method applied for each person. And you can start with, you know, you can, you can use knowledge from other lifters and apply it to a starting point for a new lifter, but you need to uh, adapt and evolve it from there. Right. And now when you figure out the thing that works for each person and each individual, you don't just always do that. You still have time periods where you work other traits, work capacity, hypertrophy, You know, we're not always just running that same peaking block over and over and over again. So while there is that concern of mundaneness and repeating the same thing over and over again, there are ways to break that up with intention and break that up in a way that still allows Lifter to maintain their strength and continue to adapt and evolve. Now, that also looks different for different people. Because some people need a bigger degree of variation to stay engaged mentally. Mm -hmm. And that's something that you need to consider from, from an application standpoint and a coaching standpoint. What does this individual need? Because their needs are different than the other person's needs. My needs are different than your needs. So it's about understanding what each individual athlete's needs are and what their goals are and blending the program to meet those needs To progress them towards their goals.
1: I love that. And and that to me speaks to the nuance involved in the training process. And it's something that fascinates me in in the terms of like each individual is different. Um, Each individual has different personality traits. And something that I think gets lost in the sauce a little bit is especially with younger coaches and younger coaches who are great lifters themselves is this constant need to fit their clients into the same box as them.
0: Yeah.
1: Very few of the lifters that we work with are that like world level competitor who is able to devote, you know, three hours, four times a week to training and mm-hmm. will recover to the best of their abilities, blah 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 blah. They're professionals, they're parents, they are, you know, they have interests outside of lifting maybe they want to do a conditioning class once in a while. You know, these are things that all factor into the training process and they're all factor into how we plan these microcycles, mesocycles. Not only that, it's, I find it, I found it interesting that you mentioned, you know, time to peak is relatively consistent over the course of a, of a lifter's lifespan. I found it's super, super like dependent on their life factors. Oh, that can definitely play on that for sure. Um, How do you, how do you fact, like I know a lot of what you guys do is with regards to data collection, maybe you can speak to like what kind of data that you're collecting and how you use that in determining, you know, time to peak or time to pivot.
0: Right. So just for point of clarity, like the the lifestyle factor things, They don't necessarily change a lifter's time to peak. They can influence, though, the sustainability of the development block Okay. because stress is stress. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter if it comes from a barbell or it comes from your job. Stress is stress. And if you're not recovering from that stress, you're not going to adapt, whatever it is, whether it's training stress or life stress. So if, if the training is written in a way that utilizes all of your ability to recover and life is normal and it's fine and it's not a problem. And then all of a sudden, you know, your mom dies and your dog dies and you get fired from your job and life stress just spikes. Mm -hmm. You're not going to be able to train with that same level of stress. Life stress went up, training stress needs to go down so that the total balance of stress in life on the organism is balanced. And sometimes life stress might kick in so friggin high that it's not possible. And then we have to just take a step back, pivot, chill out. You know, maybe we need to not do that meat anymore mm. and let, let the organism settle down. But if you can't recover, it, it doesn't matter. Right. right. And that's, that's all based on that's general adaptation
1: uh, syndrome principles. That that's everything. Right. So there, I, I, There's I, that whenever I hear anyone say the organism, I always come back to like the Russian texts and I'm like wow. the organism, the or like Mel Sif's old stuff. And I'm like, fuck, man. just, it's, it, it's almost like it gives me PTSD, of like all <laughs> old, the old reading that I used to have to do. Cause like, I mean, how old are you? Uh,
0: I turned 40 next month.
1: Yeah. So you probably came up around the same time as like, You know, we're, we're reading all of these translated texts off elite FTS because the internet doesn't exist. (laughs) And and now people are inundated with information left, right, and center on, on training stuff. There's a funny anecdote. Um, No, I I love everything that you're saying and it makes a, a ton of sense. And not only that, from a coaching perspective, having those conversations those are the main part of creating a relationship with the people that you work with. And without that relationship of empathy, you can't accurately interpret the data because numbers are numbers and they only mean so much in the way that they relate to the person giving you those numbers. I agree. Yeah. So, Before we hopped in the podcast, I said, you know, I think this is a perfect segue into that conversation. When dealing with people, we're dealing with more than data. And before the podcast, when we were talking, I said, what's something that you're super passionate about that you really want to talk about today? And you mentioned mental health. I think something that I've paid so much more attention to, especially as I've progressed as a coach, you know, I've been doing this almost 20 years now. And I've had the opportunity to, to do a lot of continuing education on the mental health side because of my previous employment. I think we miss that piece a lot of the time when we focus on the numbers and the objective information because the subjective drives the objective. Right. I'm wondering, you know, if you could speak to like why does mental health interest you so much and why are you so open about it?
0: Well. It has definitely, it's become a very passionate subject of mine. It wasn't always, but I I suppose the place to start is all the way at the beginning. Uh, I grew up in a very small town in northern Minnesota, and it was one of those towns that's so small that the way I articulate it is people that are generationally born in this town are automatically the cool kids. I was not generationally born in this town so I was not automatically a cool kid and I got put in the losers group category and I got bullied and picked on immensely it, At every around every corner on the way to school, on the bus, on the way home, everywhere and as well intentioned as it was you know a lot of people would always say sticks and stones may break your bones but words may never hurt you they did hurt me for sure. And like hearing that made me feel unsafe mm-hmm. because I thought, Oh, well they're not supposed to hurt me. Something's wrong with me because they do hurt me. Yeah. And so I was super fucking conflicted with all of that. And I had no idea how to express myself. And it, it, it got real bad and I was incredibly lonely. I had no outlet. I had no place to blow any of this steam off. I, I didn't feel supported in any way. And at age 12 i thought the only way to take care of it was to end my life that was the only way to make that pain and suffering stop and fortunately i was able to stop myself before i did any irreversible physical harm to myself and thought you know i know my parents love me and they don't deserve to find me here like mm. this i need to i need to i need to stop so i stopped and a couple of months later after that was when i first got to play football and oh man you mean I get to fucking hit somebody as hard as I want and not get in trouble (laughs) aggression let's go I now have a place to pour this anger out and man I loved it I I absolutely loved it I was the wrecking ball even as a running back I never avoided contact I wanted to go through you not around yeah and like that was I loved it and then after that first year of football, I found a barbell and, and that was, that was love at first and early. like it, it was, it was an obsession, absolute obsession. I would ride my bike seven miles one way to the school just to lift weights for three hours to have to ride my bike seven miles back home because my parents were at work and I didn't care. I loved it. it I, I was all in. I stopped playing basketball so that I could lift weights more and focus on lifting weights and football. And that became my recognition. I got good. I got strong. I got bigger and faster and I started to get more positive recognition from my peers rather than being a loser. Mm -hmm. And so that felt really good to have some affirmation and seeming like there was some kind of external validation. The hardship about that was a lot of that damage and a lot of those seeds of self-worth, low self-worth were already planted and I just didn't realize it, but all that stuff was just external validation and it's fleeting. And so it was just a matter of like, only when I was doing good, did I think that I was worthy Mm -hmm. when I was getting the recognition for the accomplishment did I think I was worthy. So anytime that maybe I missed a PR, oh man, I was wrecked. I was wrecked inside. I was like, Oh man, I'm, I'm, I'm worthless. I'm, I, I didn't make that lift. I'm worthless. So it was really tumultuous. And I had no idea how much that stuff was controlling me in my subconscious until I was 28 years old and I was mowing the lawn one day and I got fucking smacked in the face with a baseball bat of anxiety. I just got into a new relationship and I really like this woman. I'm still with her to this day now, Vanessa Gail. And I'm like this, all this pain and hurt that I've had, that's been with me my entire life. Mm -hmm. And I really want, I don't know what to do. I really, I know what going back is like. I -hmm. was there. It's really dark and scary. I really want to go forward, but I have no idea how and so i hired a a therapist and worked with a therapist for a while and that began my self-healing and self-care journey and all of that stuff and it's been a a journey of seeking higher consciousness and greater love and compassion for myself and for people and like the power of the mind just all kinds of really awesome stuff and it finally got to a point uh, about, oh, I suppose four years ago, maybe a little more than that, I started having this realization of, man, I'm I'm pretty good. Like I've made some really cool changes for myself and mm-hmm. I'm showing up and participating in life the way I want to on my terms. And I love myself. This is cool. I want to share this with people. Mm-hmm. And that's when I started speaking out about it. That's when I started my podcast, Project Unchained Uh, I try and speak out publicly as much as I can with other podcasts and trying to do more live speaking engagements. That's one of the reasons why I love coaching. Like the way I look at it is any coach can read a book and learn how to make a muscle stronger. That shit's easy. But what I really like is when I can work with a lifter and help them on their mind because your strongest muscle in the gym is your mind. And so it's been cool too, for me, is like this whole journey of doing all that stuff. It, it's all been like this external validation thing and seeking external validation. And I kind of went through a little bit of a, uh, identity crisis when I, when I finally got my head right and I was good and I'm like, man, why do I lift so much? I don't need this external validation anymore. What is this doing? And I had a cool conversation with Mark Robb, one of our other coaches, And he's like, yeah, but think about all the things that lifting taught you along the way. Mm -hmm. Boom, man. Oh, wow. That question was so pivotal for me because now my entire relationship with lifting weights is what am I learning in this moment right now that empowers me away from the barbell? And one of the biggest things that really helped me when I started thinking about that was there. I am learning so much more about myself and life lifting these weights than just bigger, faster, stronger muscles. That and, and I think, sorry, so keep keep going, please. And I, when when we can, can get connected with that, that's when we get so much more value out of it than a PR. And when we do miss that PR opportunity, because we're gonna miss those PR opportunities from time to time, it's yeah, gonna sure. happen no matter what. It doesn't bother me anymore. I don't feel worthless anymore. I got invited to the ABS Pro, the, the professional powerlifting meet in August last year in 2023 or was it 2022, 2023. Uh, no, 2022. Sorry. So many, so many meets year. over the years. Yeah. <laughs> but it was, it was a big deal. It was a pro meet and it's in Ireland and it's, I had the worst meet of my career. It was oh, atrocious. I almost bombed out. I made five of nine lifts. It was ugly. And it was still one of the most enjoyable meets I've ever had in my entire life. And when it was all said and done, I was completely fine. I wasn't happy about the the performance, but I was fine. Right? Like I was okay and grounded within myself. And I knew that, hey, you know, I'm still worthy. I'm still a good person. I still believe in myself and my abilities. I just had a bad meet. And so like getting to that point where I can have a bad day and it not define me. Wow. Like that was, that meat was like a big culmination of like this work that I've done all these years to get my head right is really
1: like, it's done something for me. This is fucking cool.
0: This is, it's been worth it.
1: Yeah. When I hear you speak, I, I hear someone who's definitely gone through a lot of work on themselves. And the reason I was so excited when you mentioned that was like, Everything you've just said resonates so deeply with me. And I haven't shared much of my story on this podcast. I've shared it on a few other ones. But, you know, my journey, although there was never any element of self harm, you know, I started lifting just because I had terrible self worth, wanted to, you know, improve upon the things that I felt I had control over. Um, Oh, yeah you know, I grew up as a fat kid. I wanted to be in shape, but I, I, I was always very, you know, very skilled in athletics. I ended up playing, you know, my freshman year in, in basketball. I'm like, for people who don't know, I'm five foot nine. Clearly I am white and, uh, you know, definitely not suited to playing in the NBA, but, um, you know, I want, I knew I could get faster. I knew I could get stronger. So I started lifting weights and, really just fell in love with the barbell, but it became this search for external validation, trying to prove to myself that through accomplishments, I could get the approval of others. And I based my approval of self on the approval of others. And like, you know, I have a lot of tattoos and a lot of them have certain meanings. And the one that comes to mind that I've spoken about a lot with my own therapist was, you know, I have a sheet of armor on my forearm. This represents like, you know, I have armor on my forearm the same way I've built this, this, uh, this armor of muscle on my body to protect myself from the world. And it wasn't until I got to a point, you know, I first worked with a therapist when I was 26. Um, I started working with a therapist again when I was 30, I'm now 36. I still go to therapy every month. I, I consider it like, you know, brushing my mental teeth. Um, and I'll go, I'll go to therapy for the rest of my life because it's an opportunity for me to check in with myself. And it wasn't, it wasn't until I would say probably two years ago that I really felt like I had got to a point where I was living life on my own terms for my own reasons and in a way that you know achieved that self-actualization. But when it came to lifting, you know, at one point I was ranked in the top 10 all time in two different weight classes. I still fucking hated myself. And if I had a bad meat, it was because I was inadequate and it drove me to do a lot of things that I'm now dealing with the repercussions of, you know, having a likely having a torn labrum in my hip, not being able to train the way I want to, because I've been so fucked up over the years from doing the things that I thought I needed to do to get the approval of others. And so when I, you know, now when I left, it's, it's for me, um, I remember, you know, similar to you, I had the biggest meet of my life, the Arnold, the Arnold Classic in 20, 2016. It was, if I did what I was capable of doing on the day, I would have won the meet. I ended up going five for nine. It was the worst meet of my life. And I walked off the platform crying. And uh, I'm not sure, you're familiar with Brian Carroll? I'm not, no. So Brian Brian was, uh, he's the the all-time world record holder in the squad, squad 1306 okay. uh, multiply. But he, uh, he, I was writing for his website at the time and I walked off the platform and he looked at me and he was like, it's not fun anymore. Is it? I was like, I knew exactly what he meant. Um, but I was like, Nope, it's not fun anymore. And what he meant by that was, you know, the things that I had been doing were making it so that I couldn't enjoy the thing that I enjoyed most. Uh, And it was in that moment where I realized that my paradigm needed to shift. And I think a lot of, a lot of lifters get it like powerlifting is a sport of misfits. You know, we all get it. (laughs) We all get into this sport because we have this, usually it's a deep seated insecurity or a deep seated feeling of inadequacy. And we feel like every PR is a step towards self-acceptance. Right. And in a lot of cases, it's a step further and further away. Because those PRs do not come from a place that lends lends us to self-actualization. Because if you're doing it for the wrong reasons, you don't get that payoff. You don't have that why. You don't have that payoff. And so now, you know, I went through a whole lot of learning, a whole lot of... There had to be a ton of acceptance because I can't do the things... By, currently I cannot do the things that I used to be able to do. Like I can't squat over 800 anymore. Um, Funny enough, I'm pretty sure I could deadlift a PR right now, but um, that to me is like that transformation in my mind of why am I doing this has allowed me to empathize so much more deeply with the people that I work with has allowed me to enjoy the process to such a deeper level that I'm okay now with, Doing a little bit less, dialing it back, and realizing, as you said, each step along this journey is a learning opportunity for me. My entire reason for starting to coach was to teach others the same lessons that the barbell has taught me. Yeah. Funny enough, when I said that in the beginning 20 years ago, I had no fucking clue what the barbell was teaching me. (laughs) you know, for sure. And, uh, and I've rambled on a little bit, but feel free to piggyback on that one. No,
0: it's all good stuff, man. I it's totally, there's so much more that we can get from it. And I know we, at RTS, we've talked a lot about why, like, why do you lift weights? Because if you say, well, it's cause I want to get a PR good luck you're going to have a hard fucking time. You might hit some PRs along the way, but you're not going to enjoy any of it at all. Like if you are not grounded in having a purpose and having a reason, a deeper reason, it's going to it's going to become a lonely road at some point unless you unless you find that. And like we kind of tried to beat on that drum a bit particularly during all the gym closures when covid was going on. Oh, and yeah. Really tried to promote that for people like because there's a lot of people that are having a hard, hard time with not being able to go to the gym and train like, oh, the sport's going to leave me behind. There's no place for me and it, I'll, I'll never get a PR again. And I'm like, let's let's talk about this. Mm-hmm. Like there's like you can get your strength back that doesn't go away and stay away forever. Uh, so we, we don't need to worry about that, but there's a deeper seated issue here going on. Like, what do you, why do you lift? There needs to be a a bigger reason because that was one of the things that I realized for me with coaching was if the sport of powerlifting went away today. Okay. See you later. Bye. Mm -hmm. I'll find another way. There's plenty of ways for me to fill my purpose. I don't coach the sport of powerlifting because my purpose is uh, to coach world champions, right? Like I I do coach world champions and they're fun to coach, but I also need more than just their skill and ability as an athlete. Like Mm -hmm. there is more to it than that. I want the relationship aspect. That is the part of coaching that lights me on fire. Mm Mm-hmm. So, having those conversations where I can support them as a person are far more important and meaningful to me because, at the end of the day, we are people first and athletes second, especially in a hobbyist sport. Mm-hmm. And if you take care of the person, the person is going to take care of the athlete. I, I look at, I think about stuff like, uh, like a Johnny Menzel. Mm-hmm. You got this guy that uh, Heisman Trophy winning college quarterback gets drafted in the NFL. He's got all the talent and all the skill in the world to have a successful career and make millions of dollars playing football. Wow. That's talk about talk about cool, right? But his career basically flops because he's an off the field. He makes all kinds of off the field mistakes and errors and mm-hmm. bad choices in life. That's the person failing yes. that takes the athlete down every single time. And we see that you, you see that with other athletes, right? Like that have struggle, that struggle. It's the person. It's not the athlete. It's not their skill and ability. It's, it's right there in their head. And that's where like all this stuff is really important to me is it, it doesn't matter how skilled you are. You're going to fail if you don't take care of your head and get your head right. One of the things, and, that, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, and where you will, even it maybe you maybe you're genetically gifted enough that you make some waves and and you win some titles or something like that you you won't be
1: as good as you could have been. okay so right. let's let's dive into that a little bit because I think it's something that you know I chatted about it with a friend of mine, Curtis Miller on the podcast a few weeks ago. and Curtis and I spoke about the churn rate uh involved, especially in younger younger clients. Um, mm-hmm. You see have these kids that come in and sometimes they're not kids sometimes they're you know well kids to me they're 10 years my, my <laughs> junior right um they come in full of piss and vinegar especially with uh within the IPF there's just a, a high amount of you know in canada we got to compete four times before we can go to nationals um and then you get into a position where you're still doing two or three meets a year and maybe you are genetically gifted enough that you can make you know some progress really quickly But then all of a sudden, it's like, eh, I've had enough. Whether it's burnout, whether it's uh, a loss of purpose, whether it's a change in interest. What have you seen with regards to maybe this new crop of athletes who are motivated for external reasons? And this is something that we kind of came to the conclusion in our conversation of they do it for the gram, right? They do it for the notoriety rather than doing it simply because they love what they're doing and they can find those parallels between the barbell and the rest of their lives. Yeah, definitely.
0: It it all hinges on self-worth. Okay. Every, every aspect of that hinges on self-worth. If you have self-worth, you, you're going to choose to do the things that resonate with you. And most of the time when you find something that resonates with you and you have a strong sense of self-worth, like that thing doesn't really change, frequently right like it's something that that if it's resonating with you it's resonating with you for a reason there's something core to it that's that's intrinsic to you the high churn rate is like those are people when they have that burnout it is that external validation they are seeking that external validation and external validation is and always will be temporary and fleeting it is not sustainable you know their extrinsic motivation intrinsic motivation like all that stuff like there's a time and place for it yes we can use external motivation to help kick us in gear and get us jump started but i think that's the only place in space that it does is that it gets you jump started mm-hmm. the only way to have the sustainability is there has to be intrinsic motivation and the intrinsic motivation is something that goes to me much deeper and that goes in again to that that why and that you're doing that thing because you gain more from it than what it appears to the outside like you're gaining from Mm -hmm. it without the need for recognition because it's internal right like there's one of the things that i've explained like i do public speaking and i tell people you know it's uncomfortable You don't ever get comfortable public speaking. It will always be uncomfortable. Yeah. And for me, I thought about it with powerlifting. Like what has powerlifting taught me and prepared me for my public speaking? The ability to do something that's uncomfortable. And I've been cultivating that skill for so many years. I'm so good at being uncomfortable. Holy shit. I can take on so much more because I have that skill. Mm-hmm. And the second I connected with that skill, my ability to deliver my message in a public speaking setting was it. it the quality was increased. Sure. My comfort did not increase. My quality increased because of my ability to be uncomfortable and do it anyways. You know, and, and like once you connect the dots to having some of those things, they're they're not things that anybody else is going to be like, oh yeah, hey, congrats on that discomfort PR. No, no, people don't see that. And th- and that's why it's more for me. And it's intrinsic to me because it's a skill internal with me that I can lean on in any different given moment. And it- it's come in handy in many different places, public speaking. Uh, I was faced with a very uncomfortable, belligerent man a couple of weeks ago in the middle of a car accident. And in my head, I'm like, you can handle this moment of discomfort. Don't add angry fuel to an angry fire because you being grounded right now is keeping this situation under control from it turning violent. And, mm. and like, I don't have time for any of that kind of bullshit. So, mm-hmm. you know, like leaning on it in those moments that are impromptu, like their life skills, but it has to be intrinsic. That only comes from, Why am I doing this? What can I learn and gain from this moment that is more meaningful than a five rep PR or whatever training statistic it is?
1: Let's pull the layers back again to a lot. So for those unfamiliar with RTS, we're using a, like you're going to be using a lot of subjective variables, especially when it comes to like rate of perceived exertion. And I feel like that's just the perfect learning opportunity for those lessons, right? To, to actually ask yourself to check in with yourself, like how hard was this really? What are the factors at play here? Because one of the, one of the ways that I think people boil down RPE is like, How many reps in reserve did you have? Well, reps in reserve and RPE are not the same thing because I'll tell you firsthand, I've squatted (laughs) 850 pounds and I've squatted 600 pounds. The RPE or the, sorry, the perceived difficulty of a 600 pound squat is the exact same as an 800 pound squat. They all suck. It's It's all a 10. But if I factor in, How fast did it move? How stable was I? What's going on in my life? How does this relate to my all-time best? How does this relate to the amount of fatigue I'm carrying from the rest of this block? Now we're getting into a more nuanced data point that I can point to and say, that 600 single was a six. That 750 single was a nine, right? And even though from 600 to 800, they all suck. How do those conversations go with your lifters to teach them that, that introspection, that level of deep introspection that's involved in these training related decisions,
0: being able to separate like temporary feeling Mm -hmm from thought and from skill and from ability and understand that they're all in little different compartments. They're all connected and they're all related, but they are also all a little bit different. And like, I think about it too, when I do squats with bands, Mm -hmm. man, every, every single, if I were to rate it based on how I feel, yeah, it's all ten cuz walking out with squats and bands it all oh, it feels so crushing. Yeah. Well, that was a warm up and I moved fast. Okay, load more weight on the bar, feel more uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I have to like understand and parse that out and and connect with that that feeling. Feelings are not the same thing as that perception of effort. Mm-hmm. Like yes it can be an indicator it can be one of the things that plays into it at the end of the day but it's multiple facets it's multiple layered and one of the things that's interesting to think about if if you're not good for you and you're not you don't have a strong sense of self-worth auto regulation training is not for you because you are going to chase load and you're going to administer the training program incorrectly and not have the correct stimulus. Mm-hmm. We have to be able to go in and do, if we're working up to a by one at eight, it has to be a by one at eight. No, there's going to be some fluctuations in there. It's not always perfect. It is an approximation system, right? So like, how we talk about it. The end goal is to be within a half an RPE of the protocol, right? Anything more, anything less, more weight, go again, anything more, learn the lesson. Don't do it again. Mm -hmm. You probably do it again, but if you're probably consistently do it, then you're trying to validate yourself. You're trying to validate the training. You're trying to validate this effort rather than rather than execute a process because if the training is working up to a by one at eight and you're hitting a buy one at nine, you're not executing the training. You are sabotaging the training. You are increasing the amount of stress that you're under. And at the end of the day, every single one of the most important training, like foundational principle ideas in training is stress adaptation. You put stress on the organism, the, the organism freaks out and responds and adapts to the training stress and recovers. Well, if you're doing the wrong stress, you're not going to recover. You don't actually get stronger from lifting weights. You get stronger from recovering from lifting weights.
1: You nailed it. You nailed that like chasing load versus chasing the stimulus. And that's probably one of the most challenging things to dial in, especially very like type A um, control freaks, if they don't see that, that E1RM going up every week, they think they're failing. But when you look, when you're able to use the word separate, I use the word detach. When you're able to detach from the individual session and look at it from the perspective of stimulus, it doesn't matter if that E1RM goes up week to week. It matters if it goes up mesocycle to mesocycle that's what you're after and you have to understand that that rpe rating factors in your total level of stress yep so session to session your total stress load is going to vary but what we're doing is we're controlling that individual session's dosage of stress so that that's stable and if we know and this is kind of where emerging strategies to me makes the most sense is like we control the variable that we can control and that's training stress. And then based on your response to the training stress, we can modify that training stress to accommodate this uncontrollable nebulous lifestyle stress that you don't have control over.
0: Yep. Definitely. Definitely. And that's, like I say, that's, that, that's where it can be really tricky for somebody who might not be as, as, have that sense of self-worth and that's where it comes to play in the sport and i mean it comes to play in a bunch of different areas but that's one of them and so if we're always chasing that external validation we gotta oh i gotta post a pr this week for the gram like (laughs) you're gonna have a really hard time and it's not it's not going to be enjoyable and like some of the stuff that I've told the other lifters before, too. Again, this is a hobbyist sport. You're not out there fighting for a multi-million dollar contract. If you're not enjoying this, why the fuck are you doing it?
1: No, why? I actually, I actually used to joke. I'd be like, "The world's most mediocre training." And I remember there was one off season. It was funny enough. It was the off season, the first off season where I squatted eight hundred in a meet. I squatted four fifty five for a five by five every single week for fourteen weeks. I just made that 455 look nicer and nicer and nicer and nicer every single week. And the 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 ongoing joke for me was like how light can I lift in training and still PR at the meet? And that's how I came to realize that because of my predisposition to more of like an explosive style of lifting, I fatigue very quickly. So if I have like I pulled 700 2 weeks ago, this week pulling 450 was brutal. So I know that for me, the fatigue of a heavy single is so much that like, I just don't do them in training anymore because I can't, I can't tolerate them and sustain my effort throughout the course of that mesocycle. And I think what people run into is they lose sight of the stimulus because they attach the stimulus to the outcome and when they're outcome oriented as opposed to that process orientation you're not able you're not able to control the variables you're not able to recover and then you end up in this burnout situation where you can't make progress you start to hate the process yeah. and you don't want to do it anymore yep
0: I it's think, like goals
1: yep oh, sorry go ahead. Yeah. no no go ahead and build on that for sure
0: yeah okay it, it, it's like goals we all we have them as coaches. We talk about goals. You know, we, I have conversations with all my lifters, of, you know, what are your goals? And then I also like to point out like, look, at the end of the day, the the goal is just a target. Whether you actually accomplish it or not doesn't matter. And that blows people's minds because they're like, well, what do you mean? Why would it not matter if I accomplish the goal? The goal is just, there to provide direction of effort. That's it. If you accomplish it, fucking cool. that mm-hmm. that's awesome. That is really cool. That is fantastic. Mm-hmm. But if you think about it, uh, like a, a a journey the the journey is through a mountainous terrain. There's peaks and valleys. and every time you go through a valley and you learn all kinds of stuff in the shadows and the, all kinds of things and you start climbing out of there and you're, here you go, you're climbing up the up the peak and you get to the peak of the mountain you the peak is the goal, right? You get to the peak and you accomplish that thing. Well, when you get to that peak and you accomplish that thing, you are also now have an entirely different vantage point to look around you and see the rest of the mountains all over mm-hmm. And now you realize, oh whoa, that other peak over there is way bigger and cooler than this little fucking thing. Let's mm-hmm. go over there and get that, mm-hmm. but not all peaks have ridges to the next peak. Sometimes you got to climb your happy ass back down through that valley of of all the shadow work and get down there and and do the work and get the volume base. If we're talking about training to go climb
1: up that other peak. Are you familiar with uh, the myth of Sisyphus? I am not. So Sisyphus, it's an, it's a Greek, um, a Greek fable, but uh, there's a philosopher named Albert Camus who wrote a book and the premise is like Sisyphus is smiling. So Sisyphus was punished by the gods to push a rock up the hill. And every time that he got the rock to the top of the hill, it would roll back down. And his philosophy was you have to imagine that Sisyphus is happy because he has purpose to push the rock up Mm -hmm. the hill. Mm -hmm. And when we look at goals as Sisyphus pushing this rock up a hill, you're going to, like if you have the right stepping stones outlined towards this goal. So say I set a goal that I want to squat 800 pounds. And I know that I have to do 750 for a double and I have to do 700 for a triple and I have to do blah, 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 blah. And I hit these milestones. Well, I know I'm going to squat 800. So I'm just going to go show up and I'm going to do it. But then you talked about the vantage point. It's like, okay, well, there's going to be a next goal. So the rock rolls down the hill. But by pushing that rock up the hill and checking off those boxes you have that's that's the process of finding happiness happiness is not happiness is not a destination happiness is the process of being actively invested and working towards something meaningful and that to me speaks to like the mentality we have to have as lifters in that all we're doing is pushing this rock up a hill and we know that as soon as we get to that next goal it's going to roll back down and we're going to have new goals. So, as long as we can be happy within this journey, that's where you're going to get this self actualization effect from the training. That's how you're going to get sustainability. That's how you're going to be invested long term. That's how you're going to get the real lessons from the training. Yeah. It's, but that is very hard to communicate to someone who is very externally motivated. Yeah. That's definitely,
0: that's good. I like that. It, it makes me think about like the importance of, you know, what am I getting from this session? What am I getting from this training besides, you know, the physical work, the, the stronger muscles and think about it as character building sessions, Like, We're, we're building character, whether it be characteristic traits of being able to lean into discomfort thereby growing your ability to handle discomfort and grow your comfort zone and do more and be more and create more in those ways. But outcome is just, it's just data. And Mm -hmm. I think when you have that strong self-worth and you have strong foundational characteristics of who you are, that helps you not be overly emotionally reactive to the data point. And data is just information for you to make an informed choice out of. And the, the collective of data too, not just singular data points. And I think that's important and a really cool, completely somewhat off topic in, in a, in a different world. Have you read the book Endure by Cameron Haynes? I'm familiar with it. I haven't read it. Gotcha. It, it's excellent. And like, so he's He's a, a marathon runner, an ultra marathon runner. And he talks about how he runs ultra marathons. That's his training for bow hunting. His actual purpose and passion is in bow hunting. And he wants to go get the the big animals, the ones that are so far deep into the mountain valleys and terrains that nobody else is willing to go out there to get those that he's going to go out and get. Mm-hmm. But well, one of the stories that really stuck out to me from a, a character standpoint, he has a very strong moral code in his hunting ethics in that if he draws just the one drop of blood, he's got to take that animal as humanely out of the forest as possible. So if he hits it, he's he's got to go find it no matter what. And one of those times was really bad. He was in hunting in Alaska on Pioneer Mountain. Bow hunting for doll sheep. Doll sheep has a like a 30% success rate with rifle, let alone with a bow. Like when I heard that, I was like, man, he's bow hunting doll sheep. That is fucking wild. Mm. And on Pioneer Mountain. So I, I lived in Alaska for 12 years and I worked right next to Pioneer Mountain. So I was also really familiar with what Pioneer Mountain looked like. And for those that don't know what Pioneer Mountain looks like, it's a steep, nasty bitch. It is gnarly. So I see this and can envision this, this story that he's talking about. And he messed up the shot and the arrow glanced off a of rock a little bit and clipped the Achilles heel tendon of the doll sheep and drew blood. And it ran, you know, all the adrenaline kicked in. It ran up and over the peak and over the mountain. And he was like, all right, well, it's time to go get it. And they climb up over, over the backside. And he finally sees it down, down a little lower on a, on a cliff ledge. And his hunting partner, Roy, goes, well, you go down there, you might not get out. And Cameron was, yep. And down he went. And all I could think about was like, he doesn't care what the outcome is. He doesn't take the information personally. Mm -hmm. He's grounded in the content of his character and uses that outcome to make the choice that he's, and, and using as well, like who he is, to make the choice rather than take it personally and be pissed off and be like, ah, well, fuck that animal. It'll, it'll die anyway. Who cares? No. And so he's also very spiritual in it too. And like he goes and like sits with these animals and like prays with them and has different ceremonies with them as they're ending their life. And it was really cool stuff. But to me, like that's also things that happen in our training. Mm-hmm. if we show up and we go and we're warming up and we feel like shit and nothing is moving. Right. And we're like, Oh, well, i I need to PR today. I need to add more ammonia on and last week and go. Yeah. Yep. Yep. You're taking it personally and you're making bad choices that are ungrounded and unprincipled and they're going to ruin the stimulus of the training. I love that.
1: I think that's a, I think that's a phenomenal way to, to wrap this up because there's so many, there's so many nuggets of wisdom in this conversation. And, um, I like to finish the podcast with complete nonsense. So <laughs> I hope you're, <laughs> yeah. hope you're down for that. Uh, I have a few quick hit questions for you. The first one being how long have you been growing your beard? Well,
0: a full beard, uh, 2011. I've had, I've had a full beard pretty much since
1: 2011. Like so as long always, as it is now? Or like do you yeah, often do you trim it?
0: I'll, I'll cut it back, but maybe to about half of what it is, That's not awesome. quite. Um, I've had it quite a bit longer, but when it gets longer than what it's at, it starts getting in the way and it's kind of a pain in the ass to take care of it. Um, so, uh, But I, I've i had at least a goatee ever since I, my first hair popped out my chin. <laughs> the only time I've ever shaved my face was when uh, my senior year, I had to to shave it for a new coach. He didn't want any facial hair, and so that
1: whatever. And I lost at that one time. I had to shave my face. Well, at least you're a man of your word. <laughs> um, what's the scariest lift you've ever done in training?
0: Oh, and in training would would have been several years ago. I, I've trained at home alone for for quite a few years, and this one was pretty scary because I almost missed and. I was squatting 570 in my rack and about halfway up I stopped and I'm like and I like started to black out in the middle of the lift and I ended up making the lift and getting it back to the rack and dropped down to the knees like I watched the video and I'm like I don't remember any of that that's the like I, I blacked out like straight blacked out I'm like I'm lucky that I didn't just crumble under that it was wild So that one was pretty scary. Well, I guess there was one other one too. I was, I was doing a two board press and I had my safety set for a regular bench height. And Mm -hmm. because I got the two boards, now I forgot to bring my safeties up and I missed. And I'm like, oh, oh shit. Well, I don't want to bring it towards my face. So I'll, I'll bring it down. And as I brought it down, the handle just barely, moved off to the side enough to not castrate me. (laughs) Um, That was, that was scary. So say your safeties.
1: Do you crack an egg on a flat surface or on the side of a pan? Oh, wow. Uh,
0: I suppose it's kind of on the corner of the countertop with a rounded corner. Do you
1: live with your partner? I do. She lets you do that. That's so messy. (laughs) I, I mean, we let our kid cook and I'm pretty sure she makes more of a mess than I do. Um, Last question, and this is where I get you to do my job for me. Who would you like to see on this podcast with the caveat that you have to help me get them on?
0: Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, You know, there was... Oh, Ian Bell. Ian Bell. Okay. Yeah. So... And the reason why is he was on my podcast. Uh, he he came on and joined me on several several months ago. Probably he was one of my early guests, so actually probably like a year and a half, two years ago. But he talked about internal external validation quite a bit, and how you know even even when he was winning some sub junior world championships, he didn't feel like enough. So he's got some really cool stuff and you know, a high level lifter has won at the highest level multiple times uh, and has experienced that not being enough.
1: Yeah. So he's a mutant.
0: Yeah. Uh, and super, just awesome, dude. Really, really enjoy him as a person.
1: Love it, dude. Thank you so much for joining me. It was uh absolute pleasure to get to know you. Um, this, this conversation resonated with me a lot and I hope, I hope the listeners, you know, take the lessons from it, uh, and are able to apply it. Uh, if you're interested in getting a hold of Ross, I will have links in the show notes to everywhere you can find him. Thank you guys so much for joining. Please make sure to like share, subscribe Ross. Thanks for joining my man. And, uh, I'm sure we'll be chatting again sometime soon. Likewise, Paul. Thanks for having me.